2: Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivided.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and R. Kennedy. So we are doubly delighted this week because not only has Seb returned to Cinematic Universe but also we have Al with us here today. Um, unfortunately James is going to have to sit this one out but Seb's return does mean that we will be back to Original Recipe Cinematic Universe on our next episode. Seb, just briefly,
0: what's it like to be back? Um, oh well, I would just like to point out that James isn't having to sit this one out because I'm back. We should no. probably just make that no. clear. We haven't just booted <laughs> James out, but you've um, only got three
1: chairs. Yeah, <laughs>
0: um, but no, it's 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 good. Yeah, so so Lois is now of a sufficient age that I can be trusted to go and record a podcast for two hours. In fact, um, she's already um, like grown up and left home and gone and got a job at a major metropolitan newspaper and (laughs) she's throwing herself out of windows to get the attention of a a man in a cape and yeah it's all good and i'd also like to thank um sarah and caroline and reese for stepping in while I was away and maintaining an unbeaten record in the pitch. That was that was good going. So yeah,
2: very start. true. You have got a lot to live up to, Seb. And then yeah, yeah, we should we should probably get back to Al, who is our guest this week. Yes, um, who is one half of the excellent House to Astonish podcast, uh, which you may have heard mentioned on this show before. So, Al, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what we'll be discussing on today's show?
1: Yeah, I'm Al, uh, and as just mentioned there, I'm half of the House to Astonish comic book podcast. Um, where rather than concentrate on the, the wonderful movies which come out of comics that we do occasionally deal with, uh, with that side of things, we are more concerned with the source material. So uh, we do comics news, we do comics reviews, and we do a bit of uh, mucking around at the end where we do makeovers for obscure versions of uh, Marvel Comics characters. Um, and in terms of what we're going to be covering today, it's one of my favourite comics of the past... I would say decades probably, and the interesting, uh, potentially slightly flawed, but certainly that's how we can get into, uh, interesting movie version of it, which is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World.
2: Yeah, so um, this week we'll be discussing Edgar Wright's 2010 film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, but we will also be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news as usual. But before any of that, I am going to ask Seb and Al to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And given in the last few weeks I've been... Slowly and probably very unsuccessfully Trying to get my head around what Marvel are doing with Secret Wars Which um, James has very handily explained on the podcast And also, um, Al, on your podcast I heard a very good uh, primer But slightly confused primer um, As to what's going on in Marvel As I think probably as best explained as it possibly could be <laughs> So what I want to know is What's happening over at DC <laughs> at the moment? What is their big summer crossover? And how is that working?
0: Well, they, I mean, obviously, DC aren't doing what Marvel did Mm. and like rebooting their continuity because they only did that five years ago themselves. Five years ago? Four years ago? Uh, 2011 Mm. with the, the new 52 reboot where they basically, they sort of did, it was pretty much a full reboot, but it was a full reboot where the characters still had histories, but they just picked which bits of previous history they wanted to use. But this year what DC have done, basically DC moved offices um, over the past couple of months um, from New York to Los Angeles and because of the upheaval of moving your entire editorial office, um, they needed some material that they could publish for two months that was done by people who weren't working on the regular comics for those two months. So basically they gave all the kind of editorial and creative staff a breather for two months and got other people in to do stories that didn't have to fit with, you know, what was going on at the time. So they did a storyline called Convergence, which, to be honest, I didn't read most of because it was really confusing. But essentially, from what I can gather, it was, um, a a villain went round gathering up all the kind of previous scrubbed continuities and versions of characters that had been made non-existent by DC's various reboots over the years, all got schmooshed together. And we're kind of having to face off against one another. But a byproduct of that was meant that you got a few quite nice short stories featuring versions of the characters that had been erased. And that was quite nice to get because a lot of them had just been kind of shoved off the table with very little fanfare when they did the Flashpoint reboot in 2011. So it was nice to get a bit of closure for some of those characters, but... I mean, Al, I don't know if you read any more of it, but it seemed like it
1: was all essentially meaningless to the world. (laughs) I did read quite a bit of, not so much, well, I read some of the main title, the main conversions book. It was really terrible, like properly (laughs) dreadful. But a lot of the kind of satellite books, a lot of these little two-issue miniseries... Actually were very enjoyable. The best out of the hmm. lot, I think was probably Jeff Parker and Evan Doc Shaner's Shazam mini series, which I didn't read that honestly. really it really captured that kind of wonderful, joyous innocence without being in any way hokey or campy or knowing or going, "Oh, look at these kids' comics or anything like that." It was a really fantastic two issue mini um it's probably worth going out now and cherry-picking some of the individual two-issue mini series while you can, because when they disappear off the shelves and you're having to rely on getting them in trade paperback collections, they are clumping them together in big batches for the collections, so you mm. may end up with a, a, having to take the, the crunchy with the smooth. you know.
2: And so that's all wrapped up now, has it? Are we, are we mm. back to normal at DC?
0: Yeah, they've sort of... They, they, they haven't rebooted continuity, but they're kind of, they're doing a slightly different approach to publishing. So rather than having all of their comics be aimed at basically the same audience, by which I mean teenage boys, um, they've kind of had a look at what Marvel have been doing and gone, Oh, we'll have a little bit of that. And they sort of started this before convergence with books mm. like Batgirl. But I think the success of Batgirl has shown them that there is a market for interesting clever comics aimed at a wider audience and so some of the they've, they've they, their new initiative they're calling it dcu y-o-u um, and they've got some new books that have been really interesting there have been some really good launches so far and um, black canary and prayers this week were both fantastic i thought
2: are dc doing what marvel are doing or could can you maybe see any seeds of them preemptively doing what marvel are doing and bringing their movie universe and comic book universe slightly closer together you know do, is there anything you could look at in this current DC lineup that might give us hints of what we'll see from various characters once those, you know, 10 planned movies actually
0: make it to the screen? They're trying to use the the Justice League of the relaunch to influence
1: the Justice right. League movie. Whether anything will come the other way around, I don't really know. Yeah, I think the difficulty that DC have got that Marvel don't have is that rather than having, like, a cinematic universe... They've got about ten different cinematic universes. You know, yeah. they've just r- unveiled the casting of who their Flash is going to be in the movies, and of course, it's not Grant Gustin. You know, they, their TV stuff stands completely that. separate from their movie stuff, and to be honest, most of their TV stuff seems to stand separate from each other as well. You know, this new Supergirl yeah. series that isn't in continuity with the Flash yeah. and Arrow series, for example. So they've got a bit of a difficulty there because if you're going to go down the road of well, we're going to be influenced by our our TV and movies. Which one do you pick? Yeah, and
0: then there's games as
1: well because there's Arkham Knight next week, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, and Injustice as well. The Arkham games have probably been the biggest influence, actually. Um, you know, particularly on on the Batman books and particularly uh, on the character of Harley Quinn. Yeah. Um, you know, basically Harley Quinn in the comics now is the Arkham version. Which to those of us who like the proper Harley Quinn, is just been like
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this sort of brutal, this brutal Juggalette that she is now. The
0: thing that I'm probably most interested in with what DC are doing at the moment, and I think it's something that's kind of quite welcome, is not being so reliant on continuity. And, you know, there is such a thing as continuity, and there is such a thing as history of these characters, but, if someone comes along with a take on a character and does a particular run on a series, let them do what they're doing with it and don't try and twist things too much to fit continuity. And I I, I think in general, comics are kind of slightly moving that way.
1: Yeah, and even if you are maintaining a continuity of plot or of story between uh, volumes of a book... The high numbers on these titles, yes, they they do kind of give a sense of history and a sense of achievement, really, I suppose. You know, it's Mm. it's difficult to keep a comic running for 700 issues or whatever. Yeah. But if you were just coming in brand new and you see that there are four X-Men books and they're, you know, uncanny X-Men's on issue 600 and all new X-Men's on issue 42 and (laughs) astonishing X-Men's on issue 17 and X-Men's on issue 28 or whatever... And you would just be like, what on earth am I supposed to do here? Which one of these do I start yeah. with? How far back do I need to go? It can be very unwelcome. Can I just
2: say that is completely correct? <laughs> that's
1: the situation i find myself in
2: I, I i would be much more likely at the moment to go back out and start reading so like i i read hawkeye or i i'd be quite likely to go and read um miss marvel but yeah mm. i'm not i wouldn't know where to jump in with the x-men particularly
1: i have to say that with these new dc comics so well, i think you pretty much have got a a pretty good fresh start on a lot of these issue ones mm. um, the one that I picked up this week that I actually really enjoyed a lot was the Martian Manhunter of all people
0: mm. who had this yeah.
1: very kind of creepy number one um, which I'm actually really looking forward to reading the rest of and I would not have said that you know three months ago that I was really looking forward to reading issue two of a Martian Manhunter series.
2: <laughs> See, this is very exciting for me. I'm hoping that once all of these comics are like six, seven issues in, that um, Seven James will pick them as recommendations on the podcast. That's how I get all, all of my comics. Anyway, let's move on to our comic book movie news segment now. Hey, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, This is Joe from the future. And when I say the future, I mean kind of two days after we recorded the rest of the podcast. And I'm recording this insert because I'm about to tell you on the podcast that this has been a pretty slow news week and that we don't really have much to discuss and then we found out about Spider-Man on Tuesday, and we thought we can't put the podcast out without mentioning Spider-Man. So, Sony and Marvel have announced that after an extensive search, Tom Holland will be playing Peter Parker, Spider-Man, in the next Spider-Man film, which is the Spider-Man film that is part of the MCU, due in cinemas July 28th, 2017. Now, Tom Holland is a a 19-year-old British actor... He began his career playing Billy Elliot on the stage and on the screen, um, has starred in The Impossible and How I Live Now and has recently been in Wolf Hall on TV. I'm a big fan of Tom Holland, particularly for his performance in The Impossible. Um, and I think this is pretty fantastic casting this was the guy i was rooting for so i'm absolutely delighted with this casting also announced is the director of the spider-man movie um, and that will be john watts now this is um a filmmaker who i am less familiar with he directed the 2014 movie clown and the upcoming uh thriller cop car which stars kevin bacon There is no mention in particular on the Marvel press release about Spider-Man's use in the rest of the MCU and whether he'll appear in Civil War. But given that this casting has has happened now, while Civil War is still filming, I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that we will indeed see our first glimpse of Spider-Man in Civil War. So, unfortunately, I can't discuss this exciting news with Al and Seb, but I thought, get it on the podcast and, um, yeah, mention how excited we are about new Spider-Man. Now we'll just have to wait and see who gets cast around Tom Holland um, and I think the first name on everyone's list will be J.K. Simmons to return as J. Janna Jameson. Okay, back to the regular show. It's not a great comic but movie news se- segment this week because there isn't much news. So we'll just kind of make the best of what we've got. Um, so in the X-Men universe, um, Channing Tatum during a hilarious Reddit AMA um, claimed that he won't appear in X-Men Apocalypse. Um, although, you know, in a week where Kit Harrington is going around telling us what he uh, will and won't be appearing in over the course of next year, I don't feel like we can believe actors about anything. Um, but uh, the latest rumours say that Hugh Jackman will be in Apocalypse, Channing Tatum won't. And also, there was a rumour that the Wolverine... Three or the third Wolverine movie would follow an old man Logan plotline, but that has been swiftly debunked by the person who spread that rumor. Um, guys, what are you, (laughs) what are you thinking about the X-Men universe at the moment? Which of the, which of those forthcoming movies are you particularly looking forward to? And if you could cherry pick where they use Hugh Jackman and where they use Channing Tatum, where would,
1: where would you be putting them if you were in, if you were Simon Kinberg? against all odds I actually kind of am sort of looking forward to the Gambit movie I know it's not very cool to like Gambit but I started reading X-Men comics in 1991 and so for me Gambit is part of the firmament of the X-Men I know that for a lot of people he's this appalling comer in with this terrible costume Um, he's a master thief so what what are the tools of the trade of a master thief Bright pink trousers and a massive stick (laughs) And, And maybe if you're trying to lift Bunches of keys off distant belts Of guards possibly That's where the stick comes in handy But aside from that I think it's pretty much Just good for putting your washing out with
2: yeah, I mean, because I don't know much about Gambit other than X-Men Origins Wolverine Gambit, who is terrible. But I like yeah. the idea of a Channing Tatum movie directed by Rupert Wyatt, who is um, who's now been confirmed
0: for that. He directed Rise of the Planet of the Apes and The Escapist. I think a lot hinges on whether he's going to do the accent or not. I think if he's going to do the accent, it, that'll be worth the ticket price alone. <laughs>
1: i I think I read a, an interview with him where he was talking about how he loved Gambit so much because oh, he was from vaguely that part of the states. I don't know whether that's right or not, but um or whether I've misremembered that entirely, but if he is, then you know hopefully he can slip yeah. into that kind of an accent to me I've got a lot of time for Channing Tatum in a lot of things like i don't I know that the the Jump Street movies are very popular. I didn't take to them that much, but I thought he was very good in them. Um, and I just think, you know, he, he pitches up in things and, and does small parts and cameos and a bunch of stuff and yeah. is always very <laughs> enjoyable. He was very good as Superman in the Lego <laughs> movie, for That's example. Very I true. He was excellent in that. He's, free, he's, free, he's from Alabama, by the way. Just looking it up quickly. Ah, <laughs> uh, right, okay. So, so Southern, but yeah. not quite the the, the right Southern. <laughs> um, and what about Hugh Jackman? Because he's announced that the
2: Wolverine, the third Wolverine movie, will be his final. Wolverine, be well, his final appearance as Wolverine. So if you were the X-Men universe, would you be scrambling to use him wherever you can, or just kind of now phasing him out somewhat?
1: I think he works very well as a sort of figurehead for the franchise, mm-hmm. because X-Men 1 was essentially the story of Rogue and the story of Wolverine. And so it actually kind of weirds me out slightly that Anna Paken hasn't been made yeah. more of in the recent... X-Men movie. You know, the fact that they cut her out entirely until this new Rogue cut yeah. that's coming. Um, so I can see them dropping in uh, Hugh Jackman where they can, but at the same time, from a purely financial box office point of view, is Hugh Jackman the box office straw that he used to be?
2: It's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of... I feel like he probably is as Wolverine. It's he He's one of those actors maybe a little bit like... Um, Daniel Craig whenever Daniel Craig is James Bond yes he is a huge box office draw. but put him in anything else and he's he's really not but I I think audiences would be happy to lap up Hugh Jackman as Wolverine for as
0: long as they possibly could I I think I've said on on this pod before what what I like about Hugh Jackman as Wolverine is just the relentless enthusiasm for doing it and if he if he reaches a point where he's not enthusiastic about it there's no point in him doing it but Given how much the cast of those films has chopped and changed, um, if you're maintaining that it is the same, it's not like kind of Spider Man where you just reboot it. If it's supposed to be the same plot and characters, having at least one piece of continuity is reasonably important and, and he does make a good through line for those films. It would feel weird to see an X-Men film that doesn't have him in it I think.
2: Um, okay um, I think that brings an end to our comic book movie news segment but let's move on now to our spoiler filled discussion of Scott Pilgrim versus the world um, but before we dive in let's listen to the trailer for the movie.
1: evil ex-boyfriend. What? Wait, we're fighting over Ramona?
2: Didn't you get my email explaining the situation? I skimmed it. Mm Mm-mm.
1: What was that all about? If we're gonna date, you may have to defeat my seven evil exes. So what you're saying is we are dating? I guess. Does that mean we can make out? Sure. Scott Pilgrim!
0: To feel the wrath of the League of evil exes
1: Ramona dated twins
0: At the same time
1: If you want something
2: bad you have to fight for it. Step up your game Scott combo Break out the L-word.
1: Lesbian? the other L-word. Lesbians.
2: What are you doing? Getting a life. You want to fight me for her? Why on earth
1: would you want to do that? Because I'm in love with her.
0: Scott Pilgrim versus the world.
1: Maybe next time we don't date the girl with 11 evil ex-boyfriends. Oh, that's not that bad.
2: Okay, so that was the trailer for Scott Pilgrim versus The World. Um, And now this is exciting, because this is um, another movie that we're going to get to discuss, that I have actually read the source material. Um, I read it back before the movie came out, or some of it at the very least. I can't remember quite how that worked out. But um, you guys have obviously both read all six volumes of um, Scott Pilgrim. So for you, before we get to the movie, what for you makes the source material so great
0: um <laughs> it'd probably be quicker to say what doesn't really mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's just it first and foremost it is just so funny um it is genuinely one of the funniest comics I've ever read and it's it's funny not just for jokes and character stuff but it's got funny art as well I mean mm. o'Malley is a a brilliant storyteller um but as well like his art just looks funny and he can make jokes out of people's expressions and stuff yeah and you know and jokes with captions and things like that it's just it's just like relentlessly funny um and yeah i just i really enjoyed this the story and the characters particularly around about the middle part of it i just really get drawn in despite the fact that scott pilgrim himself is kind of a dick and that you know the main point of the series is scott realizing that he's been kind of a dick to basically all of the women in his life ever but just when as it gradually unpeels the like the backstory of characters like envy and kim uh and even lisa who's completely left out of the film but i think we'll get Mm. to that um yeah i just i just get so drawn into it every time i go back and reread it it's just so relentlessly
1: enjoyable yeah same here really i mean when you start off volume one of scott pilgrim it seems to be this very knowing uh very kind of wisecracky take on comics and video games and what looks to be a kind of standard comic book trope of here is a boy, he's a bit rubbish but oh, you know, you you know him because really this is your life <laughs> and here's an amazing girl. Wouldn't it be amazing if this boy through doing the sorts of things that you like to do, like play video games could end up going out with this girl and as as the series unfolds it starts to kind of pull back the curtain and say, you know all that stuff that that we made you think this year was about at the beginning? is actually about how poisonous a lot of that is and how you can't treat people as prizes to be won in a game and how these people have actually all got their own <sighs> hopes and dreams and lives. And, you know, you say Scott Pilgrim is a dick. He absolutely is a dick. But as the, the particularly the last couple of books... Kind of unfold. Ramona Flowers can also be a dick. Everybody, mm. everybody has potential to be a dick, and everybody has potential to be a a hero in their own lives. And uh, so, while there is this kind of surface dressing of look, it's a, a a romance story, a a boy meets girl, boy gets girl, romance story with a, a a computer game window dressing on it. There's actually so much more just underneath that, which the series plays out over the course of the six volumes.
2: And do you think it speaks to the the kind of the strength of the the way the characters are constructed to have that story where you both mentioned that Scott is a bit of a dick? For me, he is he is a dick, but he's a lovable douchebag. You can't help but kind of warm to him, whilst
0: acknowledging that oh, I'm not really sure he deserves any of these people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he's 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 a guileless dick. He's like he's not he's not kind of like calculatingly horrible. Yes, he's a charming yeah. guy. He's incredibly naive about a lot of things. He's and, a you know, manchild, isn't he? Yeah, like, and he's
2: twenty-three like, years old, but he's got he's got kind of the life skills of a thirteen-year-old. Yeah.
0: And I don't always favour the storyline of this manchild realizes that he's not very a nice per not a very nice person, but because he realizes it, it's okay after all. Because that's such a, a horrible get-out in Scott it's, Pilgrim. It's I think most it works. Simon Pegg movies, I think, yeah, <laughs> 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 exactly, um, but. It's Scott Pilgrim, particularly in, in, you know, in, in the books, I'm not sure about the movie, in the books it does, I think, successfully have him actually have learned something. There's a really key moment in... It's the end of book five when he's saying goodbye to Kim um, and he says, sorry about everything, and she just kind of looks at him and goes, yeah, all right. And then he kind of looks down for a minute and then he looks up at look her and goes, sorry about me. And then there's a look on Kim's face that's a genuine thing of, yeah, okay, you're starting to get it now. And she actually thanks him for that. And It's like, you know, again, realising that you've been a dick doesn't make it okay that you've been a dick. But Scott Pilgrim is kind of about shedding the baggage of the past and, and moving onwards from it. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's pretty much what the culmination of the story is about, you know, because the, the evil exes are like a metaphorical representation of the baggage that everybody carries with them
2: could you say to move on to the movie that it is about a character learning to get past a state of arrested development very good <laughs> yeah yeah see what hey, because, that's Mike, the name because of the show. michael sarah <laughs> 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 okay so let's talk about the movie um and what I found really interesting, so I sat down and watched the um, the uh, director's commentary on the movie. So there's Edgar Wright uh, there with his screenwriter, Michael Bacall, and also uh, Brian Lee O'Malley, the writer, artist of the comics. And this adaptation wasn't something that kind of came about, like, cause I think it's it's fairly well known that Edgar Wright was working on this while the books were still being written.
0: Yeah, I think they started working on it after book four had come out. Um, well, so,
2: so, yeah, that's that's the interesting bit. That's kind of what I thought. Yeah. This movie was being worked on as far back as 2006. And so, basically, when Edgar Wright got involved and turned in his first draft in 2006, there was only two books out. And, basically, the movie was being developed as Brian Lee O'Malley was writing the the source material. Yeah. And both were kind of informing another to an extent. So, like, there was stuff that obviously each acknowledge would never work in in their given format. But, for instance, like, the design of the Chaos Theatre in the sixth volume is basically... Branley O'Malley stole that from the production art and um, there were certain lines that Edgar Wright wrote in the screenplay that made it into like volume four or volume five which I thought was really interesting that these two things kind of evolved over the course of about seven or eight years together yet still there is only really it's only really the first volume that it really feels slavish and then after that it diverts quite
0: dramatically the the, the second and third I think it does some stuff reasonably faithfully. I think it's yes. just that it has to cut out a lot, particularly to do with envy. But I think what, what amazes me is that, you know, you say kind of these two things were kind of, you know, almost developed simultaneously. And yet at no point, it seems, did either of the respective writers have a conversation with one another about what it was going to end up being about. Because it's like, I know obviously Brian Lee and Malley wouldn't have decided exactly what the ending was, but how did they let them get so far in the making of a film... That builds up to the idea of Scott and Knives ending up together and not realise that that was not the intent of the comic. Because to then have to change the ending to fit the ending of the comic just compromises the whole thing. And I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but it's just if they were developed in tandem and there was so much communication going on. How did they get it so far off base in like the second half of the film?
2: Basically, Brian Lee O'Malley hadn't decided how he was going to end the comics. There was, there was a point where he thought that Scott was going to end up with nobody, that he kind of didn't deserve to end up mm. with any of them. Um, and that was his original idea of how it would end. But kind of the more he wrote, the more he felt that that was a cheat. And so eventually in the books, he ends up with Ramona. Edgar Wright similarly knew that the ending was supposed to be going towards him ending up with no one, but thought that you can't do that in a movie. And he thought that the more natural end point was for him to realise that Knives was the right character to end up with. Um... And then Brian Lee O'Malley wrote his actual ending, and the Scott Pilgrim movie test screened, and the test screening audiences hated the knives ending, so he took it back to Ramona. Which other that, idiots? I was going
0: to say that's the thing I don't get because the, the because the movie builds so well to the knife. It's like if it had come out with the knives ending, I would have been unhappy that that didn't match the end of of the comic. But purely for the film on its own merits, the knives ending makes perfect sense. And it, yeah, I don't understand why test audiences would have reacted badly to the to the knives ending because it is the ending of that film, you know it's the moment where you realise that that is going to be the ending is when Scott and knives team up to fight Gideon and with the Ramona ending that scene makes no sense whatsoever Mm. and the callback to their arcade game and stuff
1: yeah I mean in terms of endings of movies and and whether you're going to have the original ending or not. Um, from the, the source material a lot of times where we have um, adaptations which diverge in that kind of a way there has been a conscious decision to, um, to put aside the the original source material whereas in this case you, know, you do kind of have developing organically and if it hadn't been for that test audience we probably would have had two different endings two mm. perfectly similarly valid endings to the Scott Pilgrim story I mean, it, it yeah. could have been worse, you know. It could have been that they decided that actually they were going to go and instead of having Scott get together with Ramona, they were going to have, uh, you know, all these nuclear reactors being detonated around the world, <laughs> and 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 recognizing that it was Big Blue Scott with his Big Blue Scott pilgrim <laughs> Wang hanging out that had actually done it. There, there, are, there are uh, there are ending changes and there are ending changes, you know. Well, this is the thing, and that was a comparison I was going to
0: make because there are actually some pretty strong comparisons to be made between Scott Pilgrim and Watchmen. Because they are both films that in a lot of ways seek to like visually, <laughs> directly be incredibly faithful to their source material that then make pretty significant changes to the overall sense and theme of what it's about. Um, Now, Scott Pilgrim isn't a perfect film and just purely as a film has some pretty glaring flaws, but I love it. And as an adaptation of Scott Pilgrim, I love it, even though I acknowledge it has flaws, because I love the way it tries to do so much of, of what makes the comic good, even though it goes off and does its own thing. Why do I forgive it with Scott Pilgrim and not with Watchmen when really they're doing basically the same thing? And it's like, is it just that I like Edgar Wright and I don't like Zack Snyder? (laughs) Is it fair that I like Scott Pilgrim and not Watchmen? This is a movie that I really like. I mean,
2: Edgar Wright, uh, The World's End aside, is a filmmaker I really like. And I'll be honest, the first time I I walked out of this movie, I kind of had a really conflicted feeling about it was that I enjoyed so much of that, but why why did it leave me feeling cold and it kind of, I, and i think it's a lot of what happens in the last 20 minutes that leaves me feeling cold and it has a lot to do with that ending having said that there is there is more than an hour of this movie that is just absolutely fantastic and ridiculously enjoyable kind of a stunning cast it does a great job i think of kind of almost replicating the feel of reading scott pilgrim on the page Mm. but on the screen in the way that sometimes the the, the way that the scenes transition from one image to another almost feels like you've just turned a page or the way that you can be on one panel and scott's in one place and the next panel he's in another place and the film just kind of throws you through that
1: I think for me the difference there between Scott Progelman and, to take Watchmen again as the example, is that Edgar Wright not only understands how movies work visually, which he clearly mm. does, he also understands what makes a comic work visually and why they're different. And so when you're lifting stuff from the comic and putting them on the screen, it can end up very flat in Watchmen, whereas... It ends up very vivid in Scott Pilgrim.
2: One of the areas that Edgar Wright is able to do that is taking. So he takes a lot of the comic book and gaming culture and references from the from the comics, and kind of some of them just flat out takes them and puts them on the screen. But there's mm. a lot that he kind of makes little tweaks to, so they make more sense on the screen. So I mean, you get you get the big verses popping up on the screen every time that there's a big fight, mm. um, and the KO and the coins. Are obviously, something in the comic that looks a lot more dynamic and you've got the uh, 16-bit universal symbol how do you feel about all those comic
0: book and gaming affectations in the movie well because it, it's interesting because like because obviously the comic is a comic that pulls in the video game iconography and you know has little touches like things like the p-bar and, and stuff like that and mm. so that you know the the comic is one medium that's pulling in stuff from another medium the film is one medium that's pulling in stuff from both it's cuz it's pulling in the stuff from the comic and the kind of the the sound effect captions and all that stuff and it's pulling in the video game stuff that the comic used as a fan of the comic i like seeing what the comic does up, up on screen like in in both its forms To someone who's not familiar with the comic, would they sit there and go, is this supposed to be a comic book movie or a video game movie? It's like, I don't know if the movie ever really nails down which it is. And part of me thinks, as much as I love all the little comic book affectations that it does and the the sound effects and stuff and the way that it works them into the background and stuff, I feel like it might have been better off not like pretending that it wasn't based on a comic and just keeping the video game stuff. Because in the video game, stuff works better. And I think, as much as I like the comic book touches, they're a
1: little superfluous. I, I, I would totally agree with that. I think that you know, obviously the the comic pulls in video game stuff because that's how Scott Pilgrim relates to the world. Essentially, he's yeah, he, exactly. he relates to everything through you know his small talk at parties is about the origin of Pac Man and things like that. Mm. Yeah. But the reason that it's got comic book captions and stuff in it is because it is a comic book it's not because scott pilgrim sees things through the prism of comic books
2: and the gaming stuff i guess is super super central to the whole idea of the movie because i guess the idea is that scott pilgrim he shouldn't be a guy who should be able to defeat seven evil exes but the idea is that he's this amazing fighter because he's played street fighter and because he's played mortal kombat and tekken and you know the idea is that he is taking these skills and he is he is able to adapt them in this weird kind of warped universe that scott pilgrim exists in whereas all the comic book stuff is it's not really central to the story but i can imagine if you're a director like edgar wright who has just made Shaun of the dead and hot fuzz how could you resist all those comic book affectations? You, <laughs> yeah. you, you would have to visualise them on the screen, because could you imagine Edgar Wright looking at all that stuff and going no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> the sound effects and the, the little little visual representations on the screen, I don't want to do that, it's not for me.
1: I think the keeping the video game stuff in works as well on a thematic level because Scott Pilgrim's I think one of his main problems and one of the places where his dickishness comes from so much with regard to Ramona is that he thinks he can win her. He thinks mm-hmm. he, can, he can get her by beating a series of challenges. And that's somewhere that, that Scott does eventually in the comics realise that he's not really able to do. I mean, yeah, in the movie, mm-hmm. he does have to have a big final battle with Gideon and everything because, you know, big visual spectacle movie and everything like that. But there's not really that same equivalent that that same assumption coming out of being a comic book reader. When you read a comic book, you haven't won something except, you know, 32 pages of printed paper.
2: And another thing that Edgar Wright mentions on the commentary, which is a, which is something that occurs to me every time I'm watching this film, but never occurs to me when I'm reading the books, is what are the rules of this universe like oh someone can suddenly produce a sword from their chest can they that's that's the thing that can well, happen if they in up. this world <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> well is this- uh, or like suddenly like when the first fight happens you're like oh okay so these are things that can happen in this universe and i think as an as an average movie goer there is there are so many points in this movie that can throw you. Mm. And it, the stakes never really feel fully defined for any of the characters in this film. I mean, just just from a base point, if you're like, is he killing the evil exes? Is that what's happening when they're shooting into coins? And on the page, it doesn't matter whatsoever. But an, on a big screen, it feels kind of like, what are the rules of this universe?
0: I don't think the film gets it across well enough that... The way that you see everything in Scott Pilgrim is how Scott sees yes. the world, yeah um, and it 's him just reflecting things that happen to him in a video game sense, so I, I never take it that in the comics he 's literally fighting and killing people. The only thing that slightly throws that is the line where envy says about you just headbutted my best friend so hard that he burst, and that 's the only moment where anyone the the only moment that i can recall that anyone suggests that scott has actually completely destroyed the people who he's fighting otherwise i just see it as a a representation of the metaphor of him slaying each
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: You know, the memory of each respective ex, and it's just kind of how he sees the world. But yeah, I'm not sure the film really gets that clearly across. <laughs> Book two is it that opens with the flashback to Scott at high school and Scott battles the big evil boss who's holding Kim um, hostage and he's the big giant flying purple guy who Scott punches so hard that he sees the curvature of the earth. And then in book six, um, you learn that actually that guy was this little timid Chinese guy who was going out with Kim and Scott beat him up. And it's just, oh... You know, it, it's not this big heroic thing that he fights these big horrible people. It's he decided that he wanted mm. to go out with Kim and Kim was dating someone and Kim cheated on him and he ended up fighting the guy. And it's just, just,
1: yeah. It's very difficult in the comic to tell what is and isn't supposed to be actually happening because there's certainly, I think, like Ramona does assert that she does travel through people's minds and that, you know, Scott's was a good shortcut because it was so empty. And things like that, you know, the the point at which somebody literally punches the highlights out of Knives' hair, things like that are, they're presented not from Scott's viewpoint. And so I think there definitely is a kind of, you just have to take this world as presented kind of side to it. But then I think O'Malley also tries to kind of his, his cake and eat it with that by revealing that actually not everything was as perhaps was originally presented. I think it's one of these things you just have to kind of strap in and enjoy it. And it's easier to do that with a comic than a film.
2: Yeah, and I think that when when you've got Edgar Wright directing and using all of these really stylistic choices for almost everything he's doing, you know, just from cuts from one character to another or, you know... The, I mean, you talk about the dreamscape, the way mm. that his... Aspects ratio kind of shrinks in and then expands back out when you're in that mindscape. I think Edgar Wright certainly helps, you know, kind of you go, okay, look, I'm just going to have to roll with this world. But like I say, I I, I can understand why this wasn't a big breakout crossover success with mainstream audiences, because it's just it's so hard to get a handle on. And also, Edgar Wright being the director he is, there is so much of the beauty of the filmmaking is just in the background of scenes. I mean, Edgar Wright is obsessed with numbers. If you've watched The World's End, Edgar Wright sticks numbers in for references for every pub that they get to. And he does the same here with the X's. If you watch, each character has some kind of representation about whether they're the first, second, third of each of the X's. And then just stuff like in the the background of the scenes, there's a scene where Scott and Ramon on the bus, um and kind of in the background of all the Ramona shots there are little X's, and in the background of all the Scott shots there are little hearts. Just in the way that the kind of the light is hitting the the raindrops on the window at the bus. It there's so much here that Edgar Wright puts in, but I just on a first watch I think it's so disorientating for that first half hour and it and it doesn't really let up. You just have to keep going, okay I'm going with this, I'm going with this. <laughs>
0: It surprises me that there are people who haven't read the comics who even like the film. And I, I, I would be amazed to discover that. I, I wouldn't believe that any existed, but like my wife likes it um, and she hasn't read the comics. And it, just, it seems to me that it would be so baffling to anyone who hadn't read the comics because I feel like a lot of its flaws I can get past because I mentally fill in stuff that it leaves out from the comics. So if something doesn't quite make sense, I can fill it in but i it just seems it would be so baffling if you weren't already familiar with the world of this comic and and what it's all about because yeah because it you know it has this kind of opening 20 minutes that i mean the comic kind of does this as well but this opening thing that seems to be about one thing and then takes a juddering change in direction well you've got to you've got to warm to Scott Pilgrim straight away don't you and that i think that first scene is almost kind of like a
2: little litmus test of like are you willing to spend 90 minutes with this guy mm. Um, because because if you don't like him In this first scene Where he's just being really uh, Cute in a kitchen with his friends You're probably not going to enjoy this movie <laughs> You're probably going to find This guy insufferable Which you're kind of supposed to But you're, you're also supposed to find yeah. him funny And want to spend time with him I then would, would posit that One of the main reasons that this film can work for other people is the casting, because there are so many of these characters, I think, who they're cast so perfectly from the characters they are on the page. But there are also actors who are just insanely likable and, you know, people who have gone on to be a lot more successful in the four or five years since this movie was made.
1: Oh gosh, Chris Evans. Yeah. Being a huge example.
0: It, I, I find it tough to choose who who I enjoy more out of Chris Evans and Brandon Ralph. As, yeah. as those <sighs> they're two actors, aren't they? They are just both, and they're both just having so much fun with it. And that, and and and, um, and May Whitman's the same as well. It's just like the the enthusiasm that those three actors are having for playing those villainous characters just comes comes off the screen at you and they're just so much fun and the only problem with those three characters is that none of their scenes are long enough and they're not in the film enough yeah you kind of do want them to be around for even longer don't you
1: Particularly when you've got Michael Sarah and Mae Whitman on the screen together, you want to kind of play off the fact that an audience is going to, if they are a fan of, of Michael Sarah, they're going to look at those two characters and go, actually, her? it's great to see these two back again. Yeah. I mean, Mae yeah. Whitman, I will drop in here again by petition that Mae Whitman be Squirrel Girl in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because she oh, would be God, perfect yeah. for it.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And then Ellen Wong as Knives. I mean, Ellen Wong, this was kind of her first role and hasn't done really done anything since, but you talk about kind of the enthusiasm and the fun that Chris Evans and Brandon Ralph having. Ellen mm. Wong is just so delightful every second she's on the screen. When she is wearing fan-made bomb T-shirts, Ellen Wong made those herself <laughs> for the movie. Really? That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think, as so, I mean, she she has uh, pretty much all of the chemistry with Michael Cera that. Mary Elizabeth Winstead doesn't have I mm. <laughs> uh, think and, it's like, and, and I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead and I think she's good but uh, you don't get any spark from their relationship well, I, I think it, um, it, whereas... it speaks to Ellen Warren's performance that
2: the facts that this movie could end with Scott getting with knives and you'd be satisfied, I think that's I think that's mostly down to her. Yeah. Because in the in, in yeah. the books I never felt
0: that I wanted Scott to end up with knives. No, but knives isn't is nowhere near as significant a character in the comics and, and she serves a particular purpose and, and gets quite a decent amount of development, but it's clear from quite early on that her story's going in a different direction. Whereas yeah, in this she's I mean she's almost as much a lead character as, as the other two in this. Yeah. I mean, despite having much less screen time, um, you know, she, she has an arc and she's, she's got to be the
1: one who the audience sympathises with the most out of anyone. Yeah, I kind of think that in the comic, Knives Chow is presented as being a character who Scott is essentially taking advantage of. Whereas mm. there, there is really that in the movie. She's, she's definitely, she knows what she's doing. She knows who she is. And she likes Scott Pilgrim you know it's not a case of that that Scott Pilgrim is you know dating a high schooler
2: i still think it would feel like a bit of a cheat at the end of the movie if Scott had ended up with knives it would have fe- it, it would have felt like a bit of a crappy way to end the knives arc for her to just straight away take back the guy who just told her he cheated on her
0: yeah that that's the reason why it makes more sense not to go with it. It doesn't make more sense not to go with it because it would be a bad decision for Scott. It makes more sense not to go with it because knives would have moved on by that and you know the line about oh, I'm too cool for you anyway and mm-hmm. that's fine and and that works. But the problem is is that it's not that long before that that you've had her show up at the chaos theater still obsessing over the fact that that Scott broke up with her, and it's like that her still obs you need to have shown her having moved on earlier in Mm. the film, I think, in much the same way as as the comics kind of do. Uh, I mean, she still you know she still does kind of have that torch for scott right through to the end but it's also pretty clear by about halfway through that in her life she's moved on yeah you know
2: do you have any other favorites from the kind of the supporting cast because i mean i I just look at kieran culkin as wallace and anna kendrick as stacy johnny simmons as young neil i mean johnny simmons's face is just like he almost has the exact same blank expression that young neil has in the comics the whole way through
0: yeah I, I mean, I don't. I don't think there's anyone in the cast who I don't. I mean, uh, Brie Larson is fantastic as well. Again, it's like I, th- I remember James saying that she was the bit of casting that he wasn't sure about in terms of seeming exactly like the version from the the comic, but she absolutely is Envy. Yeah. Um, and the fact I, I love the fact that Envy was originally in the comics based on Emily Haynes out of Metric, mm-hmm. and then the film has um, Envy a Metric song. A metric yeah. song. <laughs> um, but I think the one that I'm not sure about, and I'm not sure it's necessarily that the casting is wrong or that the performance is bad, but I think the character from the comics that the film lets down the most is Kim. And actually, what I was talking about, the way Knives is in the film, like, you know, almost a kind of secondary lead, that's kind of the role Kim has in the comics. Kim is the most interesting character in the comics to me, and she's the character who you wish the comics would spend more time with, but kind of it deliberately doesn't. And in the film, I just think she's a little bit one-dimensional, and she's just the sarcastic one. And uh, as I say, it's
1: it's kind of no fault of Alison Pills, she's good at playing that as it's written, but... I think Alison Pill's a terrific actress but it, as you say she's not given as much to work with as she perhaps should be with the character but the, it's I suppose a matter of space I mean when you've yeah, got absolutely, yeah, yeah. Kim, Kim Pine and particularly young Neil in the comics in the last three books have wildly divergent storylines from Scott's story they are essentially mm-hmm. having their own comic at the same time.
2: Shall we talk about Ramona? Kind of feel like they get her almost perfectly right in one respect but completely horribly wrong in the other, and it. I think this is why, for me, the ending doesn't work and why the film leaves me cold. Because where I would say they get it completely right is Mary Elizabeth Winstead. In that, for me, I mean, she is one of my favourite actresses. I, I could kind of watch her do anything, and she has that kind of. When she walks into the film with her pink hair and Scott clocks her you clucker as well and and it's in the same way as the comics you you kind of immediately believe that this is the girl that you if you were anything like Scott Pilgrim would want to be with and the but the question i asked on email as we were preparing for this was is ramona in the movie a manic pixie dream girl and I think that she probably... She doesn't fit quite into the Manic Pixie Dream Girl archetype. I mean, because basically... the she, I don't think she fits into the Manic Pixie side of that. But in terms of being this girl who kind of wanders into a world and kind of leads a male character into a revelation that might turn them into a better person later on, I think she absolutely is that. But in the comics... I don't, I don't think that is her sole purpose but because of the way she plays out across the course of the movie and because of the lack of time that is able to be spent developing her character she kind of does just stay that because I, I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead has the potential as an actress to portray the other side of Ramona. Um, and I think the only time the film actually ever gets close to that is the not sex scene. But I don't think we get enough time to spend with her to like her and to really want her and to understand what makes her tick as a character. And as a result, the Scott, oh, this is- Scott and Ramona never really have the chemistry that I kind of feel is, is there in the comics.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, you, you've kind of said pretty much everything I would have said before you even got to the end of the question. Um, no, that's the, that's the thing. Ramona is the biggest problem with the film, and, it, and it's not necessarily a problem with Mary Elizabeth Winstead. The problem with the film is that you cannot see why Scott would be interested in Ramona or why anyone would be interested in Ramona, except for the fact that she is extremely attractive, which she is.
2: I mean, it is, I mean, like what, what I'm talking about, the scene where she walks in with the pink hair... Like when I'm watching the screen, she walks
0: onto the screen and goes, "Oh my god, I love her!" Oh yeah, and you can you can buy that reaction from Scott, but in the comics, and actually this this is a point where it's slightly shame that that James isn't here. And I mean, Al, I don't know what you think about this because it's something that me and James I think disagreed on back at the time when we were talking about the sixth book and the film when they came out. That I think that the books sell really well the notion of why scott's interested in ramona what they have in common why their personalities click i i I really like ramona as a character in in the comics and she's flawed but she has a personality and you there are lots of moments where she comes off as really likable and you can see that spark between them and that's why i think it works so well uh i think james disagrees i think james doesn't really think that in the comics you can see the appeal of her either as a character but you know that's by that's kind of by the by but the film just does not Sell you on that at all? Um, she just she just doesn't have a personality. She's just not likable. She's just she's just sullen all of the time and sort of, you know, uh, not the sullen being being sullen all the time is necessarily a bad thing in general. But for the purposes of being the character that would appeal to Scott, I think,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to know some people who were like Ramona when I was at uni who were very cool <laughs> girls, but they were absolutely miserable, and no fun to be around whatsoever. In the comics, Ramona starts off as kind of a cipher she she is presented as i was saying earlier on she is presented almost as this kind of thing for scott to attain but as Mm -hmm. the series goes on she the the curtain is drawn back and you get to see more of her past and more of what she what she likes what she feels like in volume five of the comics is almost just her comic you know it's so much of of her put on the page there's so much of her personality and and so much of what she is not showing scott at, at the outset and again, whether it's a time thing or what, but there just isn't the space to do that in the movie. Mm. And so what you get is a Ramona who. Ramona in the comics has a journey whereby she forgives herself. Ramona in the film just forgives Scott. And in doing so, she she really is kind of the The Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing, you know, she she doesn't. Weave flowers into her hair and and wear summer dresses in inappropriate times and work in a bakery and somehow afford a lot of amazing things like a loft apartment even though she works in a bakery like all these kind of pixie dream girls you know with no point does she listen to the shins and and yet she still <laughs> provides the same thing which is. A woman with very few facets to her personality who exists to show a guy why what he's doing wrong is wrong and to help them get better in themselves. And not even necessarily to get better with respect to other people, but to be able to, you know, to love themselves or to move on with their life or whatever, which is so often this kind of Manic Pixie Dream Girl's role in, in a movie like this. And it's kind of... A bit of what Scott is like in, in the movie. In the books, of course, there is much more of Scott taking responsibility for his own dickishness and for realizing that actually he's very self-centered and very, very narcissistic at points. You know, the, the, the way that he treats people, particularly the knives and particularly young Neil, is just terrible. The way he treats Kim is just to take her completely for granted. Mm-hmm. And in the film because we look at him as much more of a heroic character, it's it's much more about how he can better himself rather than how he can better how he is towards other people
2: it's difficult isn't it because ramona is introduced as literally a dream girl as scott's dream girl that's that's the idea that's on the page and in the movie yeah over the course of six volumes of a comic you can probably subvert that trope and show how actually maybe the girl that scott is fighting for when he sets off to fight seven evil X's is his dream girl but the reason why him ending up with Ramona at the end works is because, yes, he was fighting for his dream girl, but who he actually ends up with is Ramona, who's a real person, who is a real person who he, who he has got to know over the course of that. Mm. Whereas she, she never really does transcend the dream girl by the end of the movie, and that's why that's why I get back to the ending of the movie, kind of leaving me feel cold because when he is when there is isn't that scene where you think, oh, is he going to go off with knives? Oh no, knives is telling me to go off with Ramona. Or could he end up with no one? I kind of feel i don 't know how this movie ends that makes me satisfied because I mm. kind of don't feel that Scott deserves to or should be with any of these characters here, and yet I would still feel kind of cheated if he doesn't end up with anyone, and I think it 's that the film feels so. Like There is so little commitment to the idea of who he does deserve or whether there is a real true love or romance in that film. I mean, Edgar Wright was speaking about the idea that when they walk through that door, that's kind of like a relationship reset at the end
0: of the movie and they can kind of start again. It, uh, the thing about it being a kind of fresh start, it kind of has to apply to Scott's life as well. And I think that's maybe the the level on which it works because aside from the Ramona thing, at the end of the film, he's... Being asked he's lost his apartment and he's lost his band and it's like actually it's like if the film ended with him not getting together with either ramona or knives he would have literally nothing left in his life it would be like one of the bleakest endings <laughs> you would ever see. <laughs> but i think i think
1: the point is, is it's, it's like scott pilgrim adapted by the coen brothers yeah it's this man's life is destroyed with, over 90 minutes <laughs> i think kind of
0: what what the film ultimately ends up building up to is both scott and ramona kind of not exactly jettisoning their past, but kind of reaching an end of a particular chapter. And so together they go off and go, okay, you know, let's let's see what what the future holds with a kind of new life sort of thing. Whereas at least with the comic, uh, you know, the comic does end with a similar thing and a similar image of them going through the door together and stuff. But Scott's life is in a, a different place at the end. And it's like, you know, the whole thing with him moving out of the apartment with Wallace happens much earlier and he actually has his own apartment by the time of the end of the last book. It's just little things like that. Doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that it still works as a satisfying ending, but I can see why it has to be there and why the the fresh start is the only real way to make it make emotional sense. I think.
2: I think we should probably talk about Michael Sarah and his performance because if there's one thing I think that the film does kind of almost by default by casting Michael Sarah is that yes, he has that adorable, precocious kind of innocence that George Michael has in Arrested Development, and you can see why they would want to cast Michael Cera as Scott Pilgrim. But he also has that kind of... There is a, there is an undercurrent of douchiness to everything that Michael Cera does on screen in stuff like Superbad and, you know, thinking to, like, this is the end. And You've in and revolt, yeah. I immediately, I feel, in that first scene, know that, A, I like Scott Pilgrim, I want to spend time with him, but also I know that he's kind of a dick. And I know that I'm going to have to put up with a lot of his shit over the course of this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the film doesn't really have to work to set that up, no. does it? Like you say, they, they've got all of that just by casting Michael Cera. And it's like, I remember when they were first talking about doing a Scott Pilgrim movie and everyone just kind of almost kind of shrugged and went, well, it's obviously going to be Michael Cera playing him, isn't it? <laughs> it's like there, there was almost no discussion of, of the possibility of it ever being somebody else playing him.
2: Well, I remember Edgar Wright saying when he was first developing the movie, it was like the Arrested Development was on TV and he was like, oh God, that kid would be great if he was like seven or eight years older (laughs) cut to actually making the movie oh shit i (laughs) can cast that guy i don't like him as much as i like the scott pilgrim on the page uh, but i think that's because the scott pilgrim on the page can kind of get away with a little bit more before you kind of figure out that he's as much of a douche as he is i think there's a while that you kind of drift by going oh man this character is funny i'm enjoying his complete haplessness and approach to life but yeah michael serra nails it within five seconds he's like this is the character uh, you've got it. These little, just the little smirks that he gives, that are so self satisfied. They're the smirks of a guy who would give himself the rating <laughs> <Yeah. pulls. laughs>
0: Um I think there's one other kind of main cast member that we didn't really talk about as well, which I think we should at least touch on, if only to say that he's pretty much perfect, which is Jason Schwartzman. I mean, he is a slightly different Gideon oh, from God, the yeah. comics, but at, at that that you know that is the type of character that Jason Schwartzman is so good at playing. And I've just watched Listen Up, Philip. The other week, in which again he's just so good at playing dickheads, (laughs) Um, and yeah, his his Gideon is so wonderfully unlikable. And it's that little line where he's on the phone to him and he, he says something about and the acoustics in here are amazing and he's just like yeah you really yes. want to punch that guy it's such a good performance <laughs> again he's just having fun with it it's the thing you could do that with almost all the like I
2: I could I'd, I'd like to talk for like twenty minutes about how Aubrey Plaza is you know that th- you can't cast a better Julie than Aubrey Plaza and I don't think you could cast a better Stacey than oh, she's Anna she's
1: wonderful in it? it she's and, so good.
2: Let's can we talk about the action sequences? Because obviously this is Edgar Wright very heavily stylized action. But one of the things that bugged me about the World's End was how similar all of the action sequences felt. But I mean, you by definition have to have kind of like seven major action sequences in this movie, and they all feel different and they all feel dynamic. And probably again down to the casting of the Evil Exes, they all kind of pop in a different way. I mean, even the. Aggie twins who the characters don't get any dialogue <laughs> so so they kind of it's like oh let's get two of these evil x's out of the way now so we can get yeah. to the final one but a giant yeti destroying two giant sonic that's my dragons. favorite one of the action sequences actually that mm. that one
0: i
1: think it's terrific
2: <laughs> al did you have any particular
1: favorites I, I mean i think the final battle is pretty pretty exceptional in terms of the the way that it's choreographed It's it's really well done um I, I like the Chris Evans going down the um, the, the slides thing, doing his, yeah, yeah. his grind into oblivion. Yeah. Um, I think narratively the funniest one is probably Brandon Routh, though. Two of them I've got a little problem with, but it's also stuff that comes out of the books where it's like, we've got an Indian-American character, let's do a Bollywood sequence. And, you know, we've got one female character who he has to go up against. He beats her by giving her an orgasm. Uh, in a scene where in a scene where they have written off anything about bisexuality as being a phase uh, for these characters it's just a bit like mm.
2: let's talk about something that i think we're probably all going to agree is pretty great um so, uh, something that you could never properly realize in the comics and that's the music i'm no music expert because i still listen to mostly stuff from five or six decades ago um but talk to me about the music how how well is that
1: realized in the it is. film right. Great. It's just wonderful. It is absolutely truly brilliant. the The band that he, I mean, Sex Bob Bomb as a band, um, they're not a great band. They're all right, but they um, the style of music that they play is not used necessarily as a motif throughout the rest of the movie. You know, it's not like here is a a, a movie where everything sounds like somebody's listened to too much of the Pixies, which is what Sex bobom Bomb really yeah. sound like. Um, you know, you've know, you got things like the, the, the beautiful song By Your Side by Beachwood Sparks which is used in the movie, which is mm. just exceptional. You get Teenage Dream by T-Rex in there which is an amazing, amazing song. And then you've got songs yeah. which are, I would say, not necessarily terribly appropriate to the message of the movie Under My Thumb by The Rolling Stones which is yeah. one of the most <laughs> appalling misogynistic songs ever written. It's a horrific yeah. song. And yeah, we were talking about that. We were watching you, it last night. <laughs> and and similarly, I mean, Blue Tone's sleazy bed track. You know, it's not called romantic bed track, and there's a reason for that. It, <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's somebody who is trying to cajole someone into bed.
0: Um, and you've got Black Sheep, which yes. is just I don't know. Did they? Did they actually write it for the movie, or was it a B-side or something that they hadn't previously released that they used for the movie? I'm not not sure
1: if they actually wrote it specifically. I'm actually a pretty big Metric fan, and I don't know the answer to that one.
0: (laughs) But it is, like, I mean, I, I like Metric a lot, and that's still probably, like... Maybe it's just because of the context, but it, I would probably still call that my favourite metric song of what I've heard of theirs, you know, into a couple of their albums. But
2: just the idea of getting these real
0: bands to come in and actually, like, each band in the movie to have a yeah, real Yeah, having a band. real band represent each band rather than one band doing everything works really well. Who is it that does Crash and the Boys? It's a broken social scene, isn't it? Yeah, cause they've yeah, got. there's also a, there's
1: a separate BSS track on the soundtrack as well as anthems for 17-year-old girls yeah. on
0: there. But but get, getting in a band like them to do 40 seconds of music yeah. is br- brilliant.
1: It uh, also leads yeah. to one of my
0: favorite And it pays off, it really pays
2: off in all of the music scenes when the band yeah, is Yeah, it leads to one of
1: my favorite moments in the entire thing, which is where they're like this one's for the guy up in the balcony. It's called We Hate You, Please Die. And while it's just like, Whoa!
0: <laughs> that's, that was that's one of my favourite scenes in the comic, and it is one of the few that gets across pretty much bang on in the film as well. Because it's, it's when he shouts, It's not a race, guys! <laughs> and we are crashing the boys. Is that girl a boy, too? <laughs> Um,
2: Okay, well, um, I think now if we move on to our comic book recommendations section. Okay, Seb, so yeah, we'll we'll start with you. What are you going to recommend me based
0: on Scott Pilgrim? Due to the tenuous connection of Scott Pilgrim being heavily centred around music, I am going to take this opportunity, because I may not get another one, to tell you to go and read Phonogram, which... I don't even know if we've mentioned it specifically on the podcast before, but we have talked about Kieran and Jamie, because you mentioned the Wicked and Divine TV deal. Phonogram is the first comic by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. Um, Although, actually, I'm going to recommend you the second volume, which is called Phonogram, The Singles Club. And the reason I'm going to do that is that even Kieran and Jamie say, if you're going to read Phonogram, start with volume two. Um, So Phonogram, to sum it up as succinctly as I can, the premise of the series is that music is magic. And so it's about people who use music as a form of magic. And you can either take it literally or you can take it uh, the whole thing as a big metaphor for what music actually does and how music makes you feel. Um, Now, the first volume is called Rue Britannia and is a kind of fairly linear but at times quite confusing story about... uh, specifically about Britpop and about one character and his journey back into the memories of Britpop and it is a sort of, it's an A to B kind of linear story but Volume 2 is seven issues, each set at the same night, at the same nightclub, but each one centres on a different character and tells the story of part of that night from their perspective, so all seven issues are quite different but they all sort of interlock and cross over in different ways and It is just one of the greatest comics ever. I mean, it's personally hugely significant to me for lots of different reasons and I actually just published this last week on Panel Beats a long rambling article about why Phonogram is so significant to me um, right. because Volume 3, uh, which we thought was never going to happen because they've, they've gone off and done other things and, and you know got actual careers that make them money rather than Phonogram which never made them any money. Um, but they have decided to do Phonogram 3. Jamie's taken a six month break from drawing Wiccan and the Divine so that they can get out six issues of Phonogram Volume 3 later this year. Um, but Volume 2 is just I even with all the success of Wicked and the Divine I would consider it their masterpiece and yeah it's just I mean the connections to Scott Pilgrim are tenuous like I say it's partly the music connection it's partly the fact that that Jamie is good friends with Brian Lee O'Malley anyway and you know their their careers have have crossed over in multiple ways um so it's just in that ballpark of that kind of comic by that kind of person um so yeah, as I say, it's really just me taking the tenuous opportunity to say, go
1: and read phonogram.
2: Um, Al, do you do you have a recommendation for me based on Scott's? I, I do indeed
1: and this is it's sticking with sort of the same kind of thing that Seb was talking about, which is the music connection and the band's connection, which is I'm gonna take the opportunity to recommend that you go and read Hopeless Savages which is a, a book that was published by Oni Press um, in, I think it was three mini series or, or two minis and a couple of one-shots um, during the 2000s and is about to get a follow-up in the form of a, a graphic novel version as well. Um, but it's about a guy called Dirk Hopeless and a woman called Nikki Savage who were two uh, punk stars in the 70s who got married and so Hopeless Savage literally is their hyphenated surname and it's it's right. about their four children uh, Rat, Arsenal, Twitch and Zero who are just these brilliant cool little punky kids so the, the series are essentially the, the kind of the trials and tribulations of these four kids and they are they're funny as anything they are um, dramatically uh, very interesting and exciting. They are art-wise brilliant. Um, Brian Lee Malley actually worked on one of the miniseries. Um, you also had uh, China Clugston and um, who else? Christine Norrie was uh, one of the main artists on it as well. Um, they're just brilliant comics and you, get, you can get the whole thing in one volume. There's one collected volume which is called something like Hopeless Savage Greatest Hits or something like that. And, uh, yeah, I highly recommend it because it is a terrific, terrific book. Excellent. Um, and
0: so we do have one other recommendation, which is um, James couldn't make this podcast, um, but he does have a quick recommendation that he would have dropped in if uh, if he was on it. Um, I can't remember if we've had this conversation before, Joe, but uh, are, are you on the yay or nay side for Kevin Smith?
2: Both. Okay.
0: Um, (laughs) At different times. (laughs) Okay, but the point is, you don't hate him outright like some people do. So, uh, in which case, we can recommend that you read the first issue of the original Clerk's comics. So. This was Only Press originally published three single issues. Um, they're called Clerks the Comic Book, Clerks the Holiday Special, and Clerks the Lost Scene. They were then collected into a trade paperback that's got all three of them in. But the one that, that James is specifically recommending is Clerks the Comic Book, which is the first one. Uh, it's the one about the Star Wars action figures. And just a little bit in terms of style and subject matter, and also the relationship between a film and a comic book while it obviously goes in the opposite direction um, there there are yeah there are sort of i think thematic similarities it's also got fantastic art by jim marfood who is a i haven't tended to like his more recent work since he went a bit weird but his art throughout the kind of late 90s and early to mid 2000s i love big big fan of him and it's not dissimilar to brian leo in that it's this kind of cartoony black and white style great i shall seek it out
2: okay well let's move on to our final section now which is the pitch this week i thought this would be fun given that um the endings to the Scott Pilgrim comic and the Scott Pilgrim movie uh, diverge wildly, I think it's fair to say. Um, I would like to know through the pitch this week, if you could rewrite the ending of any comic book movie, what would it be? Um, Now, if I had to guess, I think I probably already know Seb's answer. (laughs) But I'm quite looking forward to hearing him rant about it anyway. So Seb um, if you could rewrite the ending of any comic book
0: movie, what would it be? You know it's funny because I was actually going to start this by saying this is not going to be a surprise to anyone who knows anything about me. <laughs> so obviously the movie whose ending I would like to rewrite is Man of Steel. Um, so I, w- I would let it get to the point where all of the senseless destruction has happened and Superman has has broken General Zod's neck. And I'm sorry if that's a spoiler to anyone but I haven't spoiled the movie nearly half as badly as, as the makers <laughs> um and after that happens and he's killed zod and he realizes all the terrible things that have happened as a result basically of of his existence um he looks up and flies off into the sky in a terrifying rage and starts to fly around the world and he flies around the world so quickly that he actually, and I know this sounds unbelievable, but he actually, the earth starts spinning backwards and he <laughs> reverses time <laughs> and he goes back to a point where he can stop Zack Snyder from making Man of Steel.
2: Al, what is, uh, what is your pitch for uh, rewriting the ending of any comic book movie? Well,
1: it, this is a, a little bit more recent even, and that I hope I'm not going to be spoiling too many people with this one, but <laughs> Big Heroes 6. Sitting in that cinema, watching the ending of Big Hero 6, and seeing Baymax bravely sacrifice himself to fire a uh, poor little Hero back into uh, the real world out of that dimension that they had gotten sucked into. And, of course, Baymax, his personality has been backed up on this chip, which is being carried by Hero, although Hero doesn't know this at the time. So what I think I would do is, rather than have uh, Baymax have to sacrifice himself, given that they are floating in a gravityless dimension, and we've already seen that he can fire his fists off. Rather than fire your fist off with Hero attached, and you know send yourself hurtling into this dimension, and Hero back through the the dimensional gate, turn round and face the other direction, and fire your fist off, and fire <laughs> your both back through the hole, you moron. I think
2: probably we could almost make this the pitch for every week on the podcast and we would be able to find just comic book movies that have bad third acts <laughs> that would just be so easily tweaked to fix them. Do you know what I'm going to do? And I, I did this a, a couple of weeks ago and you are I'm going to commission them both. I like both of them. I don't want to amalgamate them into one like I did back with um, the Ghost Rider face-off movie which I still want to see. I still think that's the best thing that we've got out of the pitch would be a Ghost Rider face-off film. Um, but, yeah, I would like both of your things to happen. So um, you're both winners this week <laughs>
0: on the pitch. Um, and At least the unbeaten run, which largely happened in Absentia, has continued.
2: <laughs> okay, so the pictures ended up in a draw this week, and that is it for this week's show. Um, before we go, Al,
1: do you want to tell the listeners where they can find more of your work online? Yeah, sure. Um, if you want to check out the comic book podcast, which I co-host, that is at house dot which has the associated blog by my co-podcaster, Paul O'Brien, where you can read about uh, mostly X-Men comics reviews, but also uh, pop music and professional wrestling, if those things are also your bag. Um, the podcast itself, you can get house dot And, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at House2Astonish.
2: Okay, excellent. Well, if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review, and we will read those out on the show. And, in fact, that is just what two of our listeners have done. Uh, Jonathan Cardwell and Countryfan52 both left us um, reviews during the last month so thank you very much for that and if you would like to do what they have done we'll give you a similar <laughs> shout out on a future episode of the podcast um, you can find us on Facebook on Twitter at cu underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com uh, you can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com and because this is a Film Divided podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Am I? You sure you want to know? The story of my life is not for the faint of heart. If somebody said it was a happy little tale, if somebody told you I was just your average, ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Spider Man.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.